We'll finish up the thoughts that we began last week in Revelation 2.17. Revelation 2.17. These are the statements Jesus made in regards to Him that overcomes to that church in Pergamos. It says there, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And that's what we covered last week. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's bow our heads together once again tonight. Heavenly Father, we do come to you, Lord, grateful as always. Certainly, Father, in this time we consider gratitude more often perhaps than other times. But always, Father, we should come to you with a heart of thanksgiving. Gratitude for your word, gratefulness for your provision, Father. Thankful for the opportunity that you give each and every one of us, Lord, to lay hold of that for which we were laid hold of for. Father, I thank you, Lord, that we can win Jesus. Help us to have that desire, Lord. Help us to realize that desire. Help us to lay hold of him. We praise you, Lord. Bless this word to our hearts tonight, Father, and help it to strengthen us further on this race that you have put us upon. We give you the glory tonight, and we praise you. Thank you once again in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, again, last week we considered the hidden manna that he spoke of there. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Uh, I don't think it's a difficult correlation to make as you look in Scripture to see that Jesus is, by his own words, as we considered last week, that he's the bread of life. He is manna from heaven. He is that satisfactory, perfect provision for all mankind, the one that the Lord gave to us that if we eat, we should not hunger. But he was also part of him. Uh, He reserves to himself so that we might seek more of that. That hidden manna is what we looked at last week. He is offered to all, but there's a fullness of understanding of him. There's a fullness of comprehension of our Savior that not all of his people will seek, will pursue. Not all of his people will love his appearing, look for his appearing, and indeed live for his appearing. And so he does reserve some back uh, for those ones who do pursue and seek him. And that's what I believe that hidden manna is. That's giving it a very quick nutshell. Uh, it just seems, well, kind of plain. Now, that second provision here is not quite as plain in my mind, not quite as obvious. It takes a little digging to look at what things might be uh, being inferred here, perhaps, suggested here, presented here in regards to this white stone. Now, there are a number of theories. Uh, I'll be honest with you, I don't look into a lot of commentaries. I remember when I was a kid, I thought, how does Brother David do this whole preparing lessons and not look at what other people are thinking about things. And over time you realize that, this is going to sound really haughty, but a lot of people get it wrong. (laughs) I hate to say it that way. A lot of people present their own ideas or their own interpretation of other people's ideas and then the interpretation of other people's ideas. And it, it doesn't take long to dispel what they're putting out there as truth and fact. And yeah, it's just not worth the time oftentimes. So, That being said, I understand, and I've heard it taught from a number of different places, a number of theories as to what this white stone is pertaining to, what it means, what it represents, whose name, etc., etc. So I want to make plain this evening that what we're looking at is kind of conceptual. 
And what I'm going to base what I'm presenting this evening, what I'm going to base it on, number one, is what Scripture tells us. Certainly that's the greatest stock you have to put any teaching into has to be the Word of God itself. But also a number of different things where we see historical evidence, historical uh, objective history from biblical times. And then we're even going to look at a couple of different um, suggestions from Jewish history, the traditions that they have passed on and what those might shade things uh, in. So that being said, I'll let you know when I don't know something, but I will also let you know when we can see clearly from Scripture what the Lord is saying about a certain thing here. So that being said, let's consider this white stone here. Now, as we start moving forward in this, I'm going to tell on myself, I played a pretty mean game of Hi-Ho Cherio yesterday. Uh, <laughs> That's one of Emmy's favorites. She always wants to play half a game just about every time before she gets bored. Well, this time she smoked me and smoked me bad. I'm not very good at it, uh, Hi-Ho Cheerio, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, you have an allotment of cherries, and you have a spinner that tells you how many to take off of your tree and drop into the bucket, or how many to put back into your tree. I can't even explain it, and it's for two-year-olds. Uh, riddle me this. Uh, and so what it is is you're spinning a spinner. That's all it is. You spin a spinner and you cross your fingers and hope that you're going to get, you know, to empty your tree. And the objective is to empty your tree before the other person does. Man, I had like nine cherries left out of ten still on my tree. And J- uh, Not Jaden. Jaden's not good at it. I kill her every time. Emmy is really good at it. So she smoked me at it. There was no skill in this game. I mean, it's so disappointing. You know, when I sit and I think, man, I legit am losing. Losing to a three-year-old. I'm okay with it because she doesn't care. But it's all chance. You know, people have, have dealt with chance-type games. Games of chance have been around for forever. Uh, I don't know about spinners, but I know people have been flipping coins for forever. People throwing dice, draw straws, cast lots, etc., etc. And people bet on those things oftentimes, bet on games of chance. But, I think it's foolish to bet on games of chance when there's very little skill involved in it, but people will find their own entertainment there. Um, people, you know, have even made life choices bet, betting on chance. You know, I need to maybe marry this guy or break up with this guy. I have no... I'll flip a coin. You know, that's probably pretty far out there, but I'm sure it's happened out there from time to time. Some people lean into the randomness of these games of chance, of these decision-making things, because to them it kind of removes the perhaps, perhaps, not perhaps, it removes the doubt of objectivity there. It, this, I'm just going to make my decision based on this coin flip or roll of the dice or whatever the case might be. And then others actually lean into what they consider the destiny of, the fate of it. You know what? You know the universe is going to come together, and I'm just going to set all the. I'm going to push all my chips in. If you go with the betting metaphor, I'm just going to put it all in here, and I'm just going to roll this dice or, or play this card or whatever the case might be, and I'm just going to let fate decide what, uh, what's going to happen here. And I think that some sometimes people let fate decide because it removes the all well, the burden of responsibility upon them, perhaps. Fate, this was fate, this is what the universe has for me. Well, that removes your own kind of, well, your own responsibility in the situation. That being said, history tells us that in, well, in this time, in biblical times, in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Palestine, in these times, 
they, they did similar things to this. I'm going to show you a big fancy word here. It's called sephomancy. Sephomancy means divination through the casting of uh, pebbles, typically marked pebbles or colored stones or pebbles. And if you don't know what divination is, it just means that you're using supernatural form or you're trying to look for a supernatural provision of information, a supernatural source of guidance or direction. And so people did back in this day, they'd use pebbles and they'd, they'd, they'd either roll out looking for a yes or no answer, looking for some kind of reading the pebbles as you would read the tea leaves or something like that. Yeah, divination through the use of pebbles. Uh, why do I bring this up? Because the root of that word is sephos. Sephos means pebble or stone. It's the Greek word for it. And that's what's used in our text here in regards to this white stone. Sephos. It means a pebble. It, tip, it typically means a polished pebble. Uh, and we'll talk more about that here in just a moment. People use such pebbles as the white stone that's presented here uh, in, for their divining and for their gaming and that sort of thing, casting these stones. Now listen, saints, I believe that the Lord is able to leave to chance whatever He wants to leave to chance. He sets things in motion in nature. He lets things happen, I believe. I don't believe... Well, let me take you to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 28. Let me see if I can express myself here. He leaves things to chance as he chooses, always leaving himself the prerogative to intervene on things if he so chooses. We know that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, that is his Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The Lord is all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, all-present, all-everything. He can do as he chooses. And we know that in Matthew 10, verse 29, and elsewhere it's recorded, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. Now some might disagree with me when I say this, but I'll tell you how I read this. It's not that the Lord is around in each nest going, pink, pink, pink. I want that one gone, I want that one gone. But that He says, I will that this process be set into motion. Different things are going to take place. Trees are going to fall in the forest. Things are going to fall on the ground. Now, he knows when those things take place, but I'm not sure he's just sitting there flipping everything down, these soulless creatures. He can do it as he chooses. But I think, I believe, he's capable. If, if Jesus can put away from his all-knowing power the understanding of when his return is, I believe that God can remove his hands from a certain measure of these things that he allows to be in place. Let uh, let chance and just that sort of thing take place in these dice rolls and whatnot. Now, like I said, I think that he's also quite capable of doing as he chooses in those dice rolls. Dad will tell you stories when mom was a young believer. They would play Monopoly when there wasn't anything to do left in in Germany. (laughs) They didn't have much to do on, on their rather meager income. I'm just telling the story as they do. And mom would pray for snake eyes <laughs> or, you know, pray for boxcars or pray for an exact amount that she needed in order to, you know, land on boardwalk or whatever the case might be. I haven't played Monopoly in a long time. But anyway, guess what would happen oftentimes? She'd, she'd get her snake eyes, you know, she'd get her boxcars. Dad said it was uncanny, man, uncanny how mom would sit here and pray. And I thought, you know, this is sacrilegious, you know, to pray for a game. But mom was praying. And she was getting it, you know. 
And dad said, you know, it dawned on him at one point that, you know, to a young believer who needed to see that the Lord was involved, was capable. You know, maybe the Lord did reach down and turn it over from six to a one. I know that the Lord is, well, we sing that song, majesty, kingdom authority. He is the authority over all things. And I do believe he holds rule over anything and everything as he so chooses. That being said, it seems that God gave the opportunity to show this work to rule as needed in some of these things that some would attribute to chance. If you turn to Exodus chapter 28, and I promise I'm getting to a point here. Exodus chapter 28, we're introduced to what we know as the Urim and the Thummim. Another kind of, well, rather mysterious Device, I guess you could say, in Exodus chapter 28, verses 29 and 30, God gives us an opportunity to see him working in this sort of thing. Uh, Working something that would be attributed to chance. Well, working supernaturally so that he might express his will in that. Exodus chapter 28 and verse 29 says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. As Aaron was the high priest... He was given a certain vestment that he was to wear, each one of those pieces having their own meaning. And it says, when he goes into the holy place, as a memorial before the Lord continually. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim. That's how I pronounce it anyway. You're free to pronounce it as you choose. And they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord Continually. Now, what is this Urim and Thummim? Well, you know what? If you have all the answers, or if you expect me to have all the answers, you're barking up the wrong tree because no one has all the answers. Uh, it's something of a mystery, exactly what it was. But it was some sort of device, some sort of object that was included in the vestment of that high priest that, well, that they used to receive the will of God, to understand what God had for them to know. Uh, most people will tell you by consensus, as a matter of fact, that it means lights and perfections, Urim and Thummim. Much of what we think about these things, uh, suppose about the Urim and Thummim, comes from Jewish tradition, as I mentioned a moment ago. Many people think it was just a, two stones or a collection of stones that were there carried upon that vestment, um, on that vest rather. Perhaps black and white. Some suppose that they were black and white so as to, well, to ask a yes or no question, I guess you could say. And then draw from within a container or something like that to pull out a yes, if it's white perhaps, and pull out a black. I mean, there are a number of different, again, speculations here and conjectures. We don't have all of that information in Scripture. But that tends to be, when you put everything together what the general consensus is that the Urim and the Thummim was. Something that would have been attributed to chance. That God put His hand into so that He could express to these ones in this time before the introduction of the Holy Spirit in His fullness. Before the corporate church can receive that leading of the Spirit. This is what, what, was, uh, what was in place. Um, Numbers 27 verse 21. Uh, is one of those places where we see this was something that that the Lord ordained, had in place. Uh, Numbers 27, verse 21, then we'll turn to 1 Samuel 28. In Numbers 27, verse 21, 
It says there when they were talking about Joshua, Moses was to present Joshua as his successor. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. If you step down to 1 Samuel chapter 28 and verse 4. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, in the days of King Saul, the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. We understand that he did answer a number of different people, by Urim, by the prophets, by dreams, all of those things. The suggestion that he didn't answer there kind of rather confirms that the Lord typically did use that sort of thing when he chose to. You can go and read it regarding Ezra and Nehemiah. Both of them were to consult with Urim and Thummim with decisions that they were making. I'm not going to take you there for time's sake. Again, in the age when the Holy Spirit had not been, well, had not been corporately fallen upon all of God's people. This was, it's not illogical to recognize that this is what the Lord would do. This is what the Lord could do, certainly. All the way up to the end of that age, just before the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. Look at the chapter before near the end there in Acts chapter 1 and verse 23. Not the Urim and the Thummim, but consistent with that sort of thing. Just before Pentecost came, they were to fill the spot that Judas left in the twelve, right? And it came down between Matthias and Barsabbas, right? In Acts chapter 1 verse 23. What did they do to find... Find the Lord's will there. They proposed two, two potential replacements. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. These were... The eleven that walked with Jesus. Do you suppose they were doing something that was outside of what he would have allowed them to do? I don't believe so. I believe this is what the Lord did have them to do. I'd call this a game of chance, not left to chance. That's what the Lord allowed. It's what he demonstrated he could do. And so we see there back in our opening passage, I will give him a white stone. As we see this history there, and in the absence of seeing, well, a number of other places, you know, a number of other support of it being something different, I wonder to myself, and this is my own thought speaking, I wonder if that white stone that's given to him or will be given to him that overcomes, isn't the Lord pointing back to this concept of him working in something that absolutely isn't chance, him working supernaturally in something? You've heard of weighted dice, and you've heard of stacked decks, and you've heard of one-sided coins. You know, people flipping a coin, leaving it to chance, but you see that it's actually heads on both sides there. Puts the odds heavily in one favor, in one's favor. The Lord gives a white stone to this one. There is no other option. There is no black stone. There is no other alternative, alternative answer. It's a yes, right? All overcomers, all of these ones who are full overcomers, 
every one of these is a child of God, and every child of God who has the actuality of passing from death unto life has no alternative, has no alternate roll of the dice. Am I, am I saved? Am I heaven-bound? Am I, well, am I one of your children? Here's the white stone that says yes, yes, yes. The stone can only be white. The answer can only be yes, eternal life. There is no other option. That white stone is given. Well, look in Isaiah chapter 38 and verse 17. When he says, You have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. They're never to return. The black stone never will return. Micah 7.19 says, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, we understand, so the Lord has removed our sin from us. For him that overcomes, and indeed all believers... Nothing is left to chance. You are given a white stone that says, I have drawn you. This is the lot you've been cast. It can only be, only be, yes, you are a child of God. Now, the Lord takes that election further. Uh, And it is indeed an election. You have been chosen. The one who believes in the Lord God, who believes in Jesus as their Redeemer, as their Savior, He is, she is, one of the elect. And the Lord takes this election further. He has elected to give us a white stone. But it goes deeper than that. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, we understand that there are varying degrees of election. Varying degrees of being picked, being drawn. All of God's chosen people are Elect. They are all chosen. All of all believers, even the even the most basic fundamental, even the even the one who doesn't know anything more than Jesus as my Savior, they're part of the elect, the overall elect, the church. Uh, but there are varying degrees. We understand. First Peter chapter two. I'll give you an example here. Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men. But chosen by God and precious, speaking of Jesus. Chosen. He is elect by God. He's chosen for a specific role. He is the Son of God. Chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, chosen, selected for his position, And precious, because he is the Son of God. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Jesus was chosen too. Jesus was elected for his position. But his preciousness is unmatched. All right? I'm looking to be transformed into his image. I'll never be his match, though. He was elect and selected for a position that only he could do. He alone could win. Victory over death, victory over sin, victory over hell and Hades and all of those things. Only he could do that. He was selected for that. He was elect. Now, there is a broad pool of ones who are elect for salvation. We understand that. All saved people are elected, chosen for eternal life simply because they believe in Jesus. They've all overcome eternal death in Christ. Now, of God's saved people, of that church, 
of that broad ocean, that sea of elect, of his chosen people, well, there's going to be elected something different, right? Something more. Him that overcomes will be a part of the elect of the elect, if that makes sense. Let me see if I can make this clearer to you. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul teaches that all of us who are in the church, all of us who are in the body of Christ, all of us who are among the elect, can seek to be elected further still to a different degree of that, called to a higher place, a greater election, if you will. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, he's talking to these believers as being already chosen, holy and beloved, this is who you are. Now he's going to call them to pursue a greater measure, the highest order of that election. Put on tender mercies. You who are saved, you who are believers, let's take some further steps. Put on tender mercies, put on kindness, put on humility. Anyone know any believers who haven't done this? I'd say the vast majority of God's people don't make it a practice, well, to live well, to the measure that the Lord calls them to, looking for His appearing. Putting on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. Forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. There's something more. Above all these, he says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. If you want to be perfected, well, there needs to be a love that's there. Something more than just simply saying, I accept, I believe, I'm a child of God, I am part of the broad elect, I'm going to go and do my own thing. There's something more. The elect look to be perfected if they want to win Christ. Uh, Paul said, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul and all others. All others who will pursue him, right? Jesus has laid hold and he's trying to, well, he would love to bring, he'd love to bring all the church into the bride. The church isn't the bride, you understand? So often we hear that presented. The bride of Christ is the church of Christ. Scripture says otherwise. The church of God, body of Christ, is God's elect. And there's going to be an out-resurrection, right? Philippians 3.11. If by any means I may attain this man Paul, given what Paul was given, this man Paul had been saved for some time by the time he wrote Philippians 3. If by any means I may attain to the out-resurrection from the dead. Here is this resurrection, this first resurrection company of all believers. There's something taken out from that. An elect from among God's elect. We want to attain to that. We want to be elected from God's elect for that bridal company. And the Lord will cast the only vote that counts when it comes to our being elected. He will cast the only vote that counts in regards to our worthiness. It won't be us. I vote that I, I, vote that I go up. I vote that I be part of the bride. <laughs> yeah, I, I would vote that. But oftentimes we don't live that vote that we would desire. We don't live that effort. We want it to be so, perhaps. It's the Lord's vote that will be cast on our behalf, whether it's yea or whether it's nay. That being said, there's another term to consider. I don't want to confuse you all. If you have any questions, you let me know. Here's another term. Cephology. It's the scientific study of elections. thought it was kind of interesting. Why do I bring this up? Well, because historians tell us that the ancient Greeks and the others in New Testament time held their elections and cast their votes using cephos, little stones. 
It wasn't just for gaming. It wasn't just for games of chance. They would bring these little pebbles, and they would, during some elections perhaps, you know, there are a lot of different methods that they used, evidently. A number of people were up for an election. They put their names on a respective urn. If you wanted to vote for them, you took your little CFOs, you walked up, dropped it in there. Whoever had the greater number, well, they won. There were a number of different other ways that they did it. In criminal cases and civil suits, um, I read this in a number of different places. If people wanted to vote for acquittal, they put a white stone up. If they wanted to vote for conviction, they put a little black stone up. Strong's concordance. Uh, Strong himself says this, In the ancient courts of justice, the accused were condemned by black pebbles and acquitted by white. To cast a vote was literally to throw a pebble. The only other place where this word that's used for that white stone, the only other place in scripture that we see it is in Acts chapter 26. I find this sort of thing fascinating. Maybe I get too caught up in words and its usage, but I don't believe that's the case. And I just think this means something, right? Paul gives his testimony to Agrippa. Who he was, what he did, what the Lord had done for him despite who he was and what he had done. And what does he say here? He says, among other things, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, what did he do? I cast my vote, or my Cephas, against them. He threw his pebble. He said, I give you my black pebble if the historians are indeed correct. Or, he just said, death in the urn or life. Drop his pebble there, whatever the case may be. The point being, that the Lord is going to elect from among his elect those who desire to lay hold of more. It is his vote that matters. Among those who are written in the book of life, He's going to look for those who have pursued the hidden manna that we read about at the beginning of this verse. And to him that overcomes, the one who overcomes fully, will not just be a part of that elect, will not only receive a white stone, but it says that he's going to receive a stone with a name on it. It's going to be a vote of sorts, it seems. And this is where it can kind of become A little bit more mysterious back in our text where it says in the stone, on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. There's going to be a name written on it. What name is it going to be? I can't help but think that it's related to what we see in verse 12 of Revelation chapter 3, where he's talking to Philadelphia there and he speaks of him that overcomes to Philadelphia, where he says, he who overcomes, verse 12 of chapter 3. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. There are a lot of names going on here. There's power in names, at least when the Lord is concerned, when he's involved in those things. You can look in Revelation chapter 19. We'll start winding this down. That final battle to come. Look, what, look who's represented there in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Revelation 19, 11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. You know who this is. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. 
He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. It says later on, his thigh is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the Lord Jesus. There's a lot of name action going on in here. A lot of unknown names. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Very similar to that one that says, which no one knows except him who receives it for that one who will receive that stone. What will it be for that one who overcomes? What will that name be on that white stone? I'm kind of inclined to believe that it's a name that's shared with the bridegroom somehow. Because it is that full overcomer we're considering. Taking his name, so to speak, it's kind of... Well, it's not always guaranteed these days when people get married that the wife takes the man's name. That's whatever you want to do. You, you do as, as you choose. I've known a number of people that they hyphenated both of their last names. If that's, if that's your bag, then so be it. Uh, but you know what I mean when I say that. Sharing the name of the bridegroom, I wouldn't want anyone's name other than Jesus, that's for sure. Kind of secures that union there. It kind of indicates that. I don't know what that name is going to be, but I believe it's something related to that. And I believe that it secures the vote that the Lord has for that one that overcomes. The Lord doesn't shy away from that vote. He says, this is my name on it, or this is your name on it, whatever the case may be. This is my white stone that says, yes, 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 for this one. I cast my vote on their part. That one is one who overcomes. Saints, I don't know much more than that. But I'm confident that him that overcomes is going to receive this. And I'm confident that I want, to re- I want to receive a white stone. And I want an, a name on that that I won't know until I read it. Perhaps no one else will know until I read it. What I do know is this. Jesus has chosen to die for him that overcomes. It's not based on chance. It's not based on anything, anything left to happenstance, circumstance, anything of those things. It's simply, I have believed and Jesus chose to die. It's not a roll of the dice. It is, this one is mine because he believed and that's that. No other alternative for that. No black stone for that one. Once you have believed, the white stone is yours. That's the only stone that can be given. And upon it will be a new name. That whether it's Jesus' name or whether it's a new name for me, it's given in Jesus' name. It's given in His will, at His determination, and by His election for His purpose. Well, that one will be the elect from among the elect, those who qualify as full overcomers. And, well, Christ Himself is going to own that vote. His Father is going to own that vote. They're going to look and say, that one is one that overcomes. Saints, I want to own a white stone when all is said and done. I trust that you do too. I don't know all of the answers behind that white stone, but I know it's something entirely desirable because Jesus says this is what I want to give him or her who is fully victorious. So may it be so that we win one of these things. Nothing according to chance, only according to the grace of God as he desires it for us. That's all that I have for you this evening.